Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 12 through 28. Hear now God's Word. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. Well, we mark time by the events and ceremonies of our lives. These are milestones, birthdays, holidays, weddings, and graduations. They can be both happy and frightening because these new circumstances present new challenges. Many of these milestones mark times of transition in our lives from childhood to adulthood, Becoming a teenager is kind of that first big step out of childhood and toward adulthood. And graduation from high school represents another major step in that direction. Moving toward full covenant transition, assuming full responsibility before God. So, to our graduating seniors here today, you want to be a man or a woman, do you? Okay, good. Well, that will take more than a string of birthdays or a diploma. That will take Christian character, and that can only be had one way. So I do want to point out what this transition does not mean, because apparently some people think this is the case. Graduation does mark a degree of accomplishment. You've lived a certain number of years, and hopefully you've gained some knowledge, some understanding, and some wisdom. We're genuinely proud of what you've accomplished, and we do congratulate you. However, 
You have not accomplished everything yet, and graduation from high school does not mean what many young people think it means or would like for it to mean. Remember, even fools make it to age 18 sometimes, and many of them even graduate from high school. There are many false and unbiblical notions around us. I can do whatever I want to do. I can come and go as I please. That's nonsense. You're Christians, and as Christians, of course, you don't think like the world. You have the infallible, the authoritative Word of God to direct you. Uh, His Word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. How can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You are not your own. Instead, you have been bought with a price and a high price at that. Of course, you can't do as you please. You belong to Christ and to his people. You don't stand alone. You are Christians first and individuals second. You've all been blessed. You've been blessed to grow up in Christian homes with Christian parents and a Christian church, to have a Christian education, and to have Christian friends. What an advantage is your baptism. Paul answers that. He says, much in every way. Up until now, your choices have been directed and guided, shaped and guarded by those who love you and who have always sought your good. Enormous effort and resources have been poured into you, way beyond what you can even begin to imagine. In short, you have all been blessed beyond measure. But now you're about to commence, which means you're about to begin. Begin what? In large measure, this is when we all, including yourselves, we'll get to find out who you really are. We get to see if you're wise or if you are, as the Bible describes some, a fool. Did you receive what you were given or will you throw it away? You will start to make more and more choices, choices that affect you not only now but will even affect eternity. And there's really no way to get around those choices. And if you think, well, I just won't make a choice, well, that is the choice. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus closes with four warnings. These are not my warnings. These are the warnings that Jesus gives. So he doesn't end his sermon on a positive note, as it were. He thinks there's something important to say here. These are broad in their scope because they are going to apply to all the various situations in your life. But first, before he begins these four warnings, Jesus segues to this section with what has come to be known as the golden rule. And I just want to make a a particular point about the golden rule that I think is really important. Jesus could have said, don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. Then all you would have to do is avoid doing bad things to other people. But Jesus tells us to do do more than nothing. 
He tells us, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. We can't obey the golden rule by being inactive. We have to be proactive. This is a call to action. Jesus says this summarizes all the law and the prophets. Love others with the same love you have for yourself. And if you do that, you won't cheat or steal or lie lie about or defraud or covet or sin against your neighbors. And then Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 with the four warnings that I want us to look at this morning. And I want to echo these in particular, these warnings for our seniors. But Charles Spurgeon wrote a couple of little books under the pseudonym John Plowman. And in the first chapter of the first book, he wrote this. Last time I made a book, I trod on some people's corns and bunions. And they wrote me angry letters asking, did you mean me? And this time, to save them the expense of a postcard, I will begin my book by saying, whether I please or whether I tease, I'll give you my honest mind. If the cap should fit, pray wear it a bit. And if not, you can leave it behind. No offense is meant, he said, but if anything in these pages should come home to a man, let him not send it next door, but get a coop for his own chickens. What is the use of reading or hearing for other people? Please then, good friend, if you find a hoe on these premises, weed your own garden with it. In other words, this is not limited to our graduating seniors. Warning number one. Two gates, two ways. The last lines of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, capture a bit of what I want to say to the seniors today. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The choice is between life and destruction, life and death both temporal and eternal. See, gates lead to somewhere. Roads lead to somewhere. And the difference is their destination. These are inescapable concepts. Your life has a trajectory. It is going somewhere. The wide gate and the Broadway, we're told, has many on it. The thing about the wide gate is it's just easy to go with the flow. There's a crowd. All you have to do is drift. The crowd will set the pace. The crowd will set the direction. As Chesterton put it, a dead thing goes with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. The wide gate and the broad path is the path of least resistance, the path that just seems natural. It's the road... It accommodates every belief, every philosophy, every lifestyle, every degree of religious devotion from fanaticism to atheism. The name of this road is Go Along and Get Along. It's the American way. Live and let live. You do what you want, I'll do what I want. We're all on the same road. This broad road is also... 
<clears throat> a crowded road. One of the great temptations here is conformity. Everybody else is doing it. No other reason except everybody else is doing it. Graduates, if you are to avoid destruction, then you are going to need some moral courage not to go with the crowd. God is not going to judge us by what others are doing. If you're following Jesus, then there will likely be a time, I can, I can guarantee you there will be a time when you're the only one who is. But if you'll take your stand for Christ, God will honor you and bless you, and he will open doors for you that you have never imagined. This broad road not only is crowded and wide, it is also deceptive. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the way thereof is death. And finally, the broad road is a fatal road. Psalm 1-6 says, the way of the ungodly shall perish. So that's one way, that's one gate, wide and broad. But then there is the narrow gate and the difficult way, and Jesus said, There are few who find that. There is one narrow choice that leads to life. I'm going to illustrate this in a moment, I hope, to show you why this is so important. This isn't somehow just being contrary and making things difficult for difficulty's sake. It's essential to life. So one narrow choice that leads to life, and every other choice leads to destruction... Jesus isn't trying to spare your feelings. He's trying to spare your life. Jesus has described the road and the way and the method of getting to life. And you're going to decide to go. Are you going to then say, no, but I want to go my own way. That would be utterly foolish. Now think about this. Suppose a mathematician says, Let's approach mathematics with a broad mind. Two plus two equals four, but that's too narrow. It could be four and a half, or let's say even five. Let's have a little flexibility in our mathematical formulas. Or let's say a chemist goes into the laboratory and says, now let's be broad-minded, and he gets this and that, and he puts it all together. He's liable to blow up the university. No, a chemist is narrow-minded. A mathematician, narrow-minded. There are rules and regulations for mathematicians and chemists, and there is also a narrow gate and a narrow way that leads to life. And few find it. You see, there aren't a hundred or a dozen or even two ways to life. There is only one. Only one gate. Only one road, and they're narrow. A line can only be straight one way. It can be crooked an infinite number of ways. I'm going to remind you of some things that you've been taught since you were born. Jesus himself is the narrow gate and the narrow road to eternal life. John 10, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, or truly, truly, 
I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus said to them, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Think about it. God Almighty, for whom all things are possible, had only one way of saving us. The only way God could remain just and and justify us was for his righteous judgment to be poured out upon his only begotten son, who was uniquely qualified as the son of God and the son of man, to stand in our place condemned. Now you've already faced some choices. You've had to decide which gate to enter to enter and which road to travel. No doubt some of your choices in your life have been wise and others have been foolish. We all do foolish things, but the Bible re- reserves the title of fool for those who keep on doing foolish things. Our text today is referring to the main gates and the main roads that are before you. So my question is, will you, now that you're commencing, now that you're about to head out, will you follow Jesus or won't you? Your baptism was the narrow gate, and upon entering that narrow gate, you were set set upon a difficult path. On this path, there will be problems and difficulties. It will be rough. It will be crooked at times, but it will always be leading upward. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross, that is to die to ourselves, and to follow him daily. It is a path full of challenges and self-denial, and I'm sad to report that we have seen young people and sometimes older people who abandon that path and who deny their baptisms. Jeremiah 9.25 alludes to this in the Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised. That's the Old Testament equivalent of baptism. I will punish all who are circumcised with all those who are uncircumcised. Like Lot's wife, they left Sodom but find themselves looking back longingly. So that's the first warning, the gate and the way. Which one? Second warning, false prophets. Old Testament is filled with prophet problems and teacher problems. False teachers would lead people astray in Israel, and, and then it, there would be, it would become a dangerous situation. Just as there are two ways, one of life and salvation, another of destruction and damnation, so too there are only two kinds of teachers, the true ones and the false ones. This world's full of teachers. They're all over the place. Salesmen selling you something. Being able to distinguish these teachers from one another is vital if you want to promote your spiritual well-being. 
Otherwise, false prophets, we're told, will lead you to destruction. False prophets come in different forms. There are those who claim to speak for the triune God, who the Bible says twist the scriptures to their own destruction. This text describes them as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Those who claim to speak for a different God or the other kind, vain philosophy, every wind of doctrine. The Bible says Satan is an angel of light and a father of lies. And I have warned you recently in this past year about three of the major ones that you'll see at the university. They go to, they go to class every day. Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud. They attend pretty much every university every day. They're in every lecture somewhere, by and large. Thankfully, there are some exceptions. But those are just three. There are many, many others and many varieties of those, many subcategories. You have to be on the lookout. You are being lied to every day, all the time. The world is full of sirens. In Greek mythology, these were creatures that were half bird and half woman who lured sailors to destruction by the sweetness of their song. I want to read this. On his way back home from Circe, Odysseus knew that he and his men must sail past the island of the Sirens. These were marvelous singers whose voices would make a man forget all else, and at last their song would steal his life away. Moldering skeletons of those who had been lured to their death lay banked high up around them where they sat singing on the shore. Odysseus told his men about them and that the only way to pass them safely was for each man to stop his ears with wax. He himself, however, was determined to hear them, and he proposed that the crew should tie him to the mast so strongly that he could not get away, however much he tried. They did this and drew near the island, all except Odysseus, deaf to the enchanting song. He heard it, and the words were even more enticing than the melody. They would give knowledge to each man who came to them, They said, ripe wisdom and a quickening of the spirit. We know all things which shall be hereafter upon the earth. So rang their song in lovely cadence, and Odysseus' heart ached with longing, but the ropes held him, and that danger was safely passed. There are many sirens and siren songs that would draw you away from Christ. You must not trust your own wisdom, and you must be resolved and and seek strength to help you from giving in to those seductions. You need the wax of God's word to plug your ears. You need the rope of Christian brothers and sisters to bind you to the mast of the Christian faith. You need the church. You are in total war that never lets up at any time. You, therefore, can't let up at any point. You must fight the good fight. Warning number three. 
is false professions. This is a really frightening text. I can remember for many years thinking this is one of the scariest texts in all the Bible. It's frightening to think about going to hell. We don't hear much about that today. It's not polite. It's even more frightening to find out too late that you're going to hell when you thought you were going to heaven. And still more frightening to think that not just a few, but many will have that experience. There will be some baptized Presbyterians and Baptists and Catholics and others who will be dismayed on that day. That's what Jesus says. In other words, you must have biblical assurance that you do, in fact, know Christ, and perhaps more importantly, that he knows you. This should be priority number one for each of you. The Apostle Paul wrote, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? Notice first in verse 21, Jesus describes the one who will enter the kingdom as the one who does the will of my Father. Judging from the context, this is more than simply saying, Lord, Lord, and doing mighty works in Jesus' name. This is the second time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has spoken of entering the kingdom of heaven. The other is from the first part of the sermon in Matthew 5:20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so when Jesus says that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, he is not saying do what they did, but only do it better. It is not that the Pharisees didn't try hard enough. It's that they were trying hard at the wrong things. They were missing the point entirely, focusing on external behaviors to get people's praise while neglecting to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Doing the Father's will is more than the externals. The Pharisees looked clean on the outside, but Jesus said they were filthy within. We all look pretty good. You look pretty good right now on a Sunday morning. You clean up pretty good. What Jesus describes here, however, is a righteousness that flows from a pure heart and a sincere faith. As our text today says, it is fruit that's good because it grows on a good tree. The narrow path is for people who are poor in spirit, who mourn over their sins, who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those people will be satisfied both now and especially later. And second, notice that Jesus says to these folks, I never knew you. It's not ultimately a question of whether we know him, as important as that is but whether he knows us. And so, seniors, I ask you today, does he know you? When Jesus meets you on the last day, will will it be as an old friend? Will Jesus say, Carly, 
Owen, Seth. I've always enjoyed our conversations, and I've never stopped interceding for you. I know you went through a lot for my sake, and you were not ashamed of me. And I want, to, I want you to know that I'm not ashamed of you either. Welcome home. Warning number four, foundations. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. This is the climactic conclusion to Jesus' sermon. Last week, Rick Skoronsky preached to us from God's Word the importance of doing whatever Jesus tells us to do. In front of all other questions should be this foundational question. What does Jesus want me to do? Does he want me to go to school? Where? Why? Does he want me to marry? And if so, who does he want me to marry? What church does he want me to be a part of? What friends does he want me to spend time with? How does he want me to spend my money? You see, everyone is trying to build a house. That's life. That's the metaphor. These two builders were both resolved to obtain what they needed, a house. And their determination was not in word only, but in deeds, for they both resolutely set out to build. At first appearance, they are both hopeful. But first appearances, first impressions are often wrong. Most people think they're pursuing happiness. There may be a deep sense of need. There may be a determined resolution to have that need supplied. But of these two builders, one may find and the other may miss. One may be foolish and the other may be wise. As you drive around and see houses, go inside and inspect them more closely. You might discover that they're not all equally well built. The story of Jesus gives us, if you looked at the two structures, they would have seemed equally complete from floor to roof, and yet there was an enormous difference between them in the most essential point. Critical to the durability of any structure, any house, is its foundation. What is it built on? What will your life be built on? When you're young, enthusiasm and ignorance will get you a little bit of the way. But give it a few years and the cracks begin to show. They show in the marriages, in the careers, in the children. You see, storms are going to come. And they're going to test what you build. The one builder is wise, the other foolish. The one superficial, the other substantial. The one pretentious, the other sincere. In due time, the first builder rejoiced as he saw his house outlive the storm. 
that the other's house, other one's house was swept away in destruction. Of the two houses, one was built, no doubt, with far less trouble, far less expense than the other. Think about it. If you're on that Broadway and you're going to build your house in that neighborhood under these methods, think about it. You can sleep in on Sundays. You don't have to spend that extra 10% that that you were going to spend on the foundation. You can pocket that. You never have to deal with a blueprint or a building inspector. Just do what you think best. You know what? The big bad wolf is going to huff and puff on your house. You can drive by many houses that look good on the outside. But if you knew what was going on on the inside, it'd be very ugly indeed. Give it time, and it will start to crumble. Charles Spurgeon commented on this passage. He said, The main difference, however, between the two houses did not lay in these cracks and settlements nor in the cheapness or rapidity of the building. It lay out of sight underground. It was all a matter of foundation. How many there are who suppose that if a thing is out of sight, it may as well be out of mind. Outward appearance is everything with men, but it is nothing with God. I want to close by reciting a few of the lyrics from a hymn you're familiar with, and we'll be singing it at the end of our service. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. O wise and loving Heavenly Father, we rejoice today over these young men and and this woman that you have called unto yourself. You formed them in their mother's wombs and have numbered their days, and we pray that you would now direct their steps and make their path straight. Protect them from temptation and from those who would do them harm. If they are wise, establish them in righteousness, equip them for service, prosper their way, and grant them your peace. O God, our Father, you have been our refuge and dwelling place in all generations. Before all creation and from all eternity, you are God. But as for us, our days are like grass, as the flowers in the field. We appear but for a moment. The wind passes over us and we are gone. O Lord, make us to know the end end and the measure of our days, that we might know how frail we really are. May we reflect on the vanity, brevity, and uncertainty of things seen and temporal, and may we pursue those things which are unseen and eternal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last two verses of our text from Matthew 7. Verses 28 and 29. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. 
For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus makes it clear that he himself is the narrow gate and the narrow way. He is the true prophet to whom we must listen. Jesus is the one you must know and the one you must be known by. And Jesus is the solid rock upon which you must build your life if you are to weather the storms. The bottom line is that every one of us is confronted with this choice. What will we do with Jesus? And so we come to his table again because he's called his disciples. He's called his followers to feed on him. And this morning I want to read a longer than usual text, but it's very specific about what we're about to do. It's from the sixth chapter of John, uh, verses 32 through 58. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but that the will of him, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it, that, how is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly... I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, 
And I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Amen. O God, our Father, you have been our refuge and dwelling place in all generations. Before all creation and from all eternity, you are God. But as for us, our days are like grass and the flowers in the field. We appear but for a moment. The wind passes over us and we are gone. O Lord, make us to know the end and the measure of our days that we might know how frail we really are. May we reflect on the vanity, brevity, and uncertainty of things seen and temporal. And may we pursue those things which are unseen and eternal. May we seek the pardon of our sins and the sanctification of our natures with all the diligence that their infinite importance demand. And may we know how to live godly and cheerful lives. Establish us, Lord, in a firm and lively persuasion of your being, providence, and grace. We thank you for our personal comforts and blessings. May we always hold them at your disposal and be ready to relinquish them at your call. Now we pray, Father, that you would bless your people and comfort us with your word and by your Holy Spirit. Bless now our feast and our rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen.